1: from the nation magazine this is start making sense political talk without the boring parts i'm john wiener later in this hour what big data says about the voters and the potential role of people of color in the upcoming election steve phillips has that report also rebel cinderella the story of a woman who went from rags to riches to radical, the epic journey of Rose Pastor Stokes. We'll speak with Adam Hochschild about his new book. But first, the news from Michigan. For that, we turn to John Nichols. Of course, he's National Affairs Correspondent for the Nation. And his new book, The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, will be out at the beginning of May. It's about the Henry Wallace campaign of 1948 and the unfinished agenda of the New Deal. John, congratulations on the new book, and welcome back.
2: It's a pleasure to be with you.
1: Well, we're speaking on Wednesday at midday. We've heard Bernie's statement. He is not leaving the race. He is looking forward to the debate in Arizona on Sunday. And his statement took the form of, Joe, what are you going to do about the agenda that is massively popular with Democrats? What do you make of uh, Bernie's current stance?
2: Well, it's a very interesting stance because if uh, people listened to his presentation, he started out with a you know, kind of a scorching rip into Donald Trump. So uh, in an interesting way, his message is, we got to beat this guy. And then his next step is to say, but it's clear from where we're at that a lot of people don't necessarily think I'm the one to do it, but they agree with my agenda. So I'm going to stay in this race and, frankly, try to make a case that, and I'm translating a little bit here, but basically saying, I am the electable one. And frankly, Joe Biden is very, very shaky on this agenda that the people like, that the people want. And so he basically did two things. One, made the debate on Sunday in Arizona a huge deal. Yes. Right. He basically said, this is where the action's going to be. You, people, it's almost like saying, hey, tune in. It's going to be worth watching. <laughs> yes. And then two, he very openly telegraphed to Biden what Biden has to do. You know, it was, it was sort of basically said, I want to hear from Joe Biden how he's going to address these issues, how he's going to deal with this reality that people like what I'm running on. They see it as important but maybe they, maybe I haven't fully convinced them that I'm the electable candidate, and maybe the media has kind of created this overwhelming sense that Biden is. Well, let's have a debate. Let's, let's let me put my agenda out and talk about why I think it's the winning agenda. Let's let Biden do what he does. Now, this gets fascinating because this gives Biden, you know, four or five days to come up with a really good argument. Yeah. And um, – and the fascinating thing is that, you know, in an odd way, Sanders has given Biden an opportunity here, an opening. Um, and he's also given himself an opportunity and an opening. And for Biden, the opportunity is to really, you know, present himself as somebody who's ready to adopt a lot of the progressive vision and to do some things with it, uh, who also is electable. Um, and if he does that well and continues to win primaries, There may be a point at which Sanders says, you know, I'm I'm satisfied or I'm at least open to what Biden is saying here. And that might be uh, a a boost for Biden and an exit strategy for Sanders. On the other hand, if Biden just doesn't do the job, frankly, in this very high profile debate, one on one debate looks horrible um, or fails in some way, uh, then Sanders has given himself the argument for staying in the race.
1: Let's look at what happened, especially in Michigan. Bernie needed to win Michigan. He won Michigan last time, and in many ways, Michigan this time was a lot like four years ago, Bernie versus an establishment Democrat, and last time he won 50-48, to a surprise victory four years ago. This time... He lost 53 to 36, and his vote total was lower than four years ago by about 22,000 votes. Biden carried the white working class voters in Michigan, who a lot of whom had voted for Bernie last time. That does make it seem like at least some of the vote for Bernie among the white working class voters was... Sexist rejection of Hillary. Uh, That's kind of a depressing factor, but it may be part of the reason Biden is doing better uh, than Hillary did in Michigan.
2: I think we can say a couple of things. One, was there a substantial portion of people who in 2016 voted for Bernie Sanders, not because they loved Bernie Sanders, but because they didn't like Hillary Clinton? Yes. Was a portion of that group voting for sexist reasons? I think you have to accept that. We, yeah. we, we know this to be a reality in our politics. Yeah. But was another portion voting because the Clinton name, unfair perhaps to Hillary Clinton, but the Clinton name was so associated with certain trade policies that are exceptionally unpopular in Michigan. And is Biden, despite the fact that he backed those policies, <laughs> those same policies, yes. mostly associated with them. So might there be people who voted for Biden because they genuinely thought he was, he was a better champion of working class ideals, values, needs, than, than Clinton was. So Michigan was damaging to Bernie Sanders. I mean, there's, there's no other way to say it. And frankly, it's important to recognize that he has been running weaker in a lot of places in 2020 than he did in 2016. It isn't just in Michigan. It's, you know, this is a reality. But there's a flip side of it. These exit polls do show that Bernie Sanders is uh, a candidate who is running on issues of Medicare for All uh, with a 57 percent approval rating in Michigan, a 58, I think, in Missouri, I think a 60 percent approval for a government-run health plan to replace you know, private insurance, like the most kind of stark description of it, 60% approval in Mississippi. So overwhelmingly, his signature issue, extremely popular. Yeah. And then also in Michigan, they did some exit polling that was fascinating. They asked, they asked whether people wanted a complete overhaul of the economic system in the United States. Wow. That's a pretty dramatic question, right? Yeah. You know, you have a chance of keep it as it is, change it a little bit, or a complete overhaul. Now that's obviously a question you might ask if there was a democratic socialist in the race. Well, in Michigan, it basically tied in the mid 40s for complete overhaul versus some change, tinkering type changes. In Missouri, it won complete overhaul in a state where Sanders did worse, right? Wow. And so, where's where do we put this all together? You know, that's on the table. That's real but then there's something else that's on the table and is real. And it's what Sanders was basically talking about in his press conference. And that is that they asked, do you want a candidate who agrees with you on the issues or do you want a candidate who can beat Trump? Yeah. And the, as in all of these races all over the country all along this year, the candidate who can beat Trump is by, by far the win, you know, that that's the winning choice. People are willing to sacrifice what they believe is necessary what they want in order to get rid of trump and these are democratic voters independents who lean democratic so therein lies the conundrum yeah sanders has got the issues and he's got a connection to some of the voting blocks that the party needs to get but not all of them and he has an quote-unquote electability problem that may have been created by the media right yep it may be unfair because there's a lot of polls that actually show he is actually quite viable against Trump. He polls the show running as well or even better than Biden. Yes. It also may have been created by his own focus on the issues rather than talking a lot more about electability at points during this campaign. But whatever it is, today Bernie Sanders came out and did a press conference in which he said, I get it. <laughs> the electability thing's a big deal. Yeah. That's basically the trans- translation. And now he wants to have a debate with Biden about that.
1: We've only got a couple of minutes left here, and I do want to talk about how the coronavirus might affect the elections. There's a lot of anxieties. Some people say it might even be necessary to postpone the election if the coronavirus uh, isn't stopped by uh, November. What do you think we need? Uh, what do we need to do
2: now? Well, that's, you get to the heart of the matter there, John. In Washington State, for instance, on Tuesday, they have, you know, they've got a lot of uh, events schools, other facilities, closed down. They, they really are in a challenging situation. But Washington state dodged the challenge there because it's a vote-by-mail state. And as a vote-by-mail state, they were able to, you know, make the process work. If it had been a, a standard state, uh, they might well have had calls for postponing the voting or for extending it or for doing, you know, all sorts of changes and all sorts of shifts, which were not very well planned for. So why don't we recognize at this moment that as we proceed through the primary process, as we proceed, and as we get toward the fall, shouldn't we have a plan? Shouldn't there be protocols? And what are are our proper protocols? Well, first and foremost, uh, we ought to establish a, a national plan saying this. We recognize that emergencies might occur at which point we might have to really shift the process quickly and so the federal government commits to provide all of the funding and all of the necessary supports to any state that wants to move to vote by mail and in fact encourages it and develops you know programs patterns theories for how to do it if we do that now uh we don't have to wrestle with the question of whether to accept the, the worst of all scenarios, which is actually an extremely low turnout election, because people don't feel they can come and vote. And there's history on this, John. It's it's not something just at the moment. In the influenza epidemic uh, outbreak pandemic of 1918, hundred years ago, I, I went back and looked through the papers. There were huge. It had a huge impact on elections. Rallies not held. You know, campaigning not done. And also. When you got to Election Day, there was a dramatic drop in turnout from the midterm elections of four years earlier. We know that elections can be affected by weather, by um, natural disasters, by all sorts of other factors. So why not plan now to make sure that if this is something bigger that lasts longer, that we're ready to deal with it?
1: John Nichols. Uh, Read it all at TheNation.com. John, always great to have you on the show. Thanks for today. Tremendous honor. For more principled progressive journalism from The Nation, you can subscribe online to our print and digital magazine at TheNation.com slash podcast subscribe with this special discount for start making sense listeners you can get digital access to all of our articles for less than a dollar fifty a month or have our print magazine delivered to you for just 60 cents an issue go to thenation.com backslash podcast subscribe Now it's time to talk about big data and what it says about beating Trump. For that, we turn to our man on big data, Steve Phillips. He wrote the New York Times bestselling book, Brown is the New White, and he's the founder of Democracy in Color, which has proposed the best data-backed plan on how Democrats and progressives can take back the country. He's host of the Democracy in Color podcast, and he writes for the New York Times, the LA Times, and The Nation. Steve Phillips, welcome back.
3: Thanks for having me.
1: Well, let's note that we're talking before the Michigan primary, of course, before Florida and Georgia. But you've argued for a long time that it's a mistake to neglect African-American voters. I guess the sudden transformation of Joe Biden into the frontrunner shows how right you are.
3: Yeah, well, it's, it's been interesting watching over the years, and particularly with Rep. Jesse Jackson endorsing Bernie over the weekend. The Jackson campaign was my you know, political baptism. And so we, we saw clearly, Jesse, going from 400 delegates in 84 to eighty-eight, three and three and a half million votes to seven million votes, the power of the vote. But it took a long time for a lot of the media to catch up. But now it really is kind of an article of faith. Which is what the numbers show: is that no nominee since '92 has won without a majority of the black vote. And so that's fortunately now getting into the into the mindset. Hopefully, it'll translate, and we won't be forgotten once the uh, nomination is is determined.
1: Well, Biden got 71 percent of the African American vote on Super Tuesday. How come? there haven't been more black voters for bernie black people we know are not afraid of socialism the polls make that very clear and certainly black people need medicare for all and free college tuition and the rest of bernie's agenda so so what happened
3: yeah i think it's a it's a couple of things so one is the just the very simple fact that he was the vice president to the first black president yeah. And so he gets a lot of credit for that and that it's the ultimate validation and endorsement for a lot of people. So that's not inconsequential at all. And then that's, you know, that was 12 years ago. So there's a duration of relationship and, and familiarity and that Bernie's just his just by first somewhat by virtue of being based in Vermont um, has not had the same length and depth of interaction and familiarity. So that's just a big part of it. On the issues, which I think is why Bernie does better with younger African-Americans who are more um, ideological, whereas I think the older African-Americans are more pragmatic, that the issues do resonate. I a mean, profound racial wealth gap, profound inequalities in our society. And so those issues do speak to uh, both the conditions of African Americans, particularly resonate with younger African Americans, but that's a smaller percentage of the overall black vote. And that's why um, Biden's doing so well with them.
1: Well, we've been involved in a big uh, debate for the last uh, couple of months about how much of Democratic strategy should focus on winning back older white working class voters who switched from Obama in 2008 to Trump in 2016, especially in Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. The argument is that since Trump won by such a small number in those states, winning back some of those older white workers should be possible, and supposedly Joe Biden is the kind of candidate who can do that. You've you've worked on the data on this question. What have you found?
3: Yeah, so I think a few different things. First is you know we have a, a, a appendix in my book the second edition talk about math not myth and so i feel a bunch of the data shows and what we really argue is that this notion that there were large numbers of white working class voters who switched from obama to trump and that gave him the election is a very powerful if not all encompassing narrative but it's not really backed up by the math and so as significant even if some, if some of that did occur as significant of that of what happened was the dramatic drop-off in black turnout. You had a almost a 20-year historic drop-off in terms of the levels of black participation. And what gets, like, no uh, appreciation at all, which is why I think that, you know, Bernie would be a, a, a competitive against Trump, is there was this historic increase in third- and fourth-party votes. The increase for Jill Stein from 2012 to 2016 was greater than the margin of difference in Michigan and Wisconsin. Wow. So who can get those voters back that you haven't heard any discussion about that conversation. It's all bit about the white working class. And then the other piece they're missing is that there's very little evidence you can get many or any of the white working class voters, but where there is some evidence is with white college educated suburban voters and the Democrats did make some progress on that in 2018, but that's a different constellation than the white working-class voters that everyone's obsessed about.
1: You've written a lot about young first-time voters, uh, many of whom are people of color. We should call them young potential first-time voters. Bernie, of course, has argued for years that we need a massive mobilization of new voters in order to change the Democratic Party. The establishment position, the pundits' position, is that the likely voters this year— are the same people who have voted regularly in the past. These, of course, are older people, people who aren't poor, people who don't have progressive politics. What do we know about how to mobilize young, first-time potential voters and get them to the polls in November?
3: Right, and that's the, another critical and overlooked constituency. But By November, there will have been 16 million young people who will have turned 18 since Trump became president. Sixteen
1: million. Let us just pause for a minute and contemplate that number, especially since Trump carried Michigan, Ohio and Pennsylvania by what? One hundred thousand votes total or something like that.
3: By 80,000 votes and just in Wisconsin and Michigan, it's almost 800,000 people will have turned 18 since Trump got elected. And those voters are more progressive they were even more progressive in 2016. They overwhelmingly voted for Clinton, actually, um, even in 2016. The the most dramatic statistics looking at Bernie and Biden is the age gap, in that Biden does extremely well with older voters and extraordinarily poorly with younger voters, and it's reversed. Bernie does very, very well with the younger voters. So the the combination of his authenticity, the consistency in his articulating a bold, unapologetic policy vision clearly is resonating with young people, and that the Democrats are going to prevail whoever the nominee is. they've got to be able to speak to that constituency and uh, resonate with the issues and the concerns that they're facing.
1: right now the the odds are that Biden will be The nominee, just assuming for the moment that that is the case, who do you think the Democrats should run for vice president?
3: I'm actually working on a piece for the Nation hopefully run this week, really raising the question about why won't they commit to the running to desegregating and diversifying the Democratic ticket? In that there's never been a non-white male vice president in history of this country. The only time Democrats have won the White House in the past 20 years has been with a diverse ticket. And so really there's an impar- there's a logic and a moral imperative around that there should be a woman of color as the running mate. And so that I think is just starting to get some traction for that, but hopefully people are going to start to focus in more on that. And the additional dimension of this is Biden's weakness with young people. So it's not just a woman of color, or any as well as how do you unify the party? Who's gonna to appeal to the Bernie constituency if it's if it's Biden as the nominee? So people have mentioned, and I think that's a very strong candidate, somebody people should look very seriously at, is Stacy Abrams from Georgia. You know, in her mid-40s, culturally connected, inspires black voters, inspires younger voters, inspires people across the across the spectrum. And it'll be a strong complement and balance to Biden. So Stacey Abrams is a strong example of the type of candidate that the nominee is going to need.
1: Of course, the betting, we are told, is on Kamala Harris. The argument for her is she was a a candidate in the primaries. She appeared on stage before millions of people. She's a senator. She has a much higher national profile. What do you think of the? The differences between Kamala Harris and Stacey Abrams as vice presidential candidates.
3: Kamala certainly has to be in the conversation as well. And she brings a lot of strengths to to the calculation also. There is an age issue and a connection to the progressive sector of the party that particularly has been Bernie's base that they have to calculate. So fair or not, I think there is some level of perception of Kamala as being more moderate and centrist. Yeah. And so that's something they're going to have to they would have to navigate and that. But if you want high black enthusiasm in terms of being able to turn out the number of voters that we had with Obama and didn't have with Clinton. We actually calculated the numbers. Stacey has gotten more black votes in a statewide election than anybody who's ever run for president. Anybody who's ever run for office not named Obama. Wow! By the size of Georgia, the number of voters that she turned out, the, they almost all went for her. So that's a very strong, compelling evidence of the of her appeal to a key constituency.
1: I want to end up by go- going back to big data. Big data can do many things. You showed in a New York Times op ed how Bernie could win. Uh, But big data did not predict that Biden would rise from the ashes. So it seems like the lesson of the last couple of weeks is not so much that big data can help us, but that you never really know what's going to happen in American politics.
3: It's true, although I think that there are certain fundamentals in terms of politics in the U.S., period. And so I think one of the things people— fail to appreciate is just how divided the country is. And there's a kind of a presumption among a lot of mainstream um, pundits that there's this that most people are undecided and there's this huge swing vote, which will, you know, go one way or the other, depending upon some variables. And that's just really not the case, that this country is divided between people who support this president and people who oppose him. Unfortunately, fortunately, it's a majority who oppose him. And then at the margins, there are going to be some other aspects of it.
1: Steve Phillips, read him at the Nation.com. listen to him on the Democracy in Color podcast. Thank you, Steve. Thanks for having me on. Now it's time to talk about an immigrant sweatshop worker who became one of the most charismatic radical leaders of the early 20th century. She's been forgotten, but now a new book tells her story. The book is Rebel Cinderella, and the author is Adam Hochschild. Adam is a best-selling author of 10 books. My favorites are To End All Wars. It's about the anti-war movement, World War I, and Bury the Chains. It's about the beginnings of the abolition of slavery. Adam has won many awards. He's a co-founder of Mother Jones Magazine. His articles have appeared in The New Yorker, Harper's, The Atlantic, and The Nation. Last time we talked here was a couple of months ago on the 100th anniversary of the Palmer Raids, the deportations of immigrant radicals, which somehow seems relevant in our own time. Adam, welcome back.
4: Thank you, John. It's always good to talk with you.
1: Well, I'm a historian of the American left, but I must confess I never heard of Rose Pastor Stokes until your book came along. But apparently I'm not the only one.
4: That's for sure. She's really a a largely unknown figure today. The surprising thing to me as I delved into her life story was that at the time that uh, she was alive and politically active, she was extraordinarily well-known. In fact, the proprietor of a newspaper clipping service in 1921 and the newspaper clipping service was the nearest thing to a database at that time. Did a count and found that she was the woman whose name was most often mentioned in American newspapers. There were five men, you know, people like Woodrow Wilson and Henry Ford, whose names were mentioned more often, but no woman was mentioned more often in the press. And if you use a database of old newspapers today like the wonderful one that the Library of Congress has that's online and free for anybody to use, you'll see thousands of articles about her.
1: Well, you open your book, Rebel Cinderella, with a fabulous scene, Rose Pastor Stokes at Carnegie Hall in 1916, but she's not playing the violin.
4: Right. She is addressing a rally promoting birth control. And to speak publicly about things and to distribute medical information about birth control was illegal under the Comstock Act at that time. And she announced on the stage of Carnegie Hall, I'm going to break the law right now. And she began passing out birth control leaflets.
1: You write about her first job in a sweatshop making cigars. How did a cigar maker get a full-time job at a newspaper? You know, a lot of young people today would like to get a job like working at a newspaper right now.
4: That's for sure. There were more newspapers back then. Well, here in brief is her story. She came to the U.S. uh, as an immigrant. She was born in Tsarist, Russia, Fled from there with her mother at the age of three lived in England for uh, seven or eight years came to the US in 1890 at the age of 11 and had to immediately go to work as a factory worker uh, in a series of factories that made cigars by the end of a dozen years she was the sole support of herself her mother and six younger siblings who'd been abandoned by a 'er ne'er-do-well stepfather but Starting around 1900, she began sending anecdotes, letters, articles, sentimental poetry to a Yiddish language newspaper in New York, the Yiddish's Tagablat, or Jewish Daily News. Happily for me, because I don't know Yiddish, she wrote for the paper's one English language page. Mm. And in early 1903, The newspaper invited her to come to New York. She had been uh, living and working in Cleveland, Ohio with her family, come to New York and become a reporter for the newspaper. And that she did.
1: Now, the interesting thing to me at this point was that she was not submitting radical, revolutionary, pro-labor articles. That's not what got her the job. What was she writing when she first started?
4: She was writing uh, humorous anecdotes, sentimental poetry, and an advice column for women called Just Between Ourselves, Girls.
1: And what kind of advice did she offer?
4: Very conventional advice. No sex before marriage, hold out for the right man, worship at the synagogue uh, on Saturdays, but sit in the balcony which is in Orthodox synagogues is often where women were, were segregated and made to sit. Very conventional stuff. Didn't seem to have thought much about politics. But after she moved to New York and got married, uh, she got very deeply into the radical movement of that time.
1: And then she got married. The, the man in your story, James Graham Phelps Stokes, I was familiar with his name, for one reason, the Phelps-Dodge strike of 1917. It was at a gigantic copper mine in Bisbee, Arizona. It's an incredible story, and it tells a lot about the family that he came from.
4: It does indeed. This was the strike where the company, the mining company, mobilized a posse of several thousand people and rounded up some 1,200 workers and took them out of, out of town across the state line to New Mexico to get them out of town very brutal crackdown this was one source of the family's uh, fortune another source was New York real estate especially luxury apartment buildings on the Upper East Side they also owned a cluster of gold and silver mines in Nevada and a railroad that led to them and James Graham Phelps Stokes or Graham as he was known to his friends was uh, son of this family, but he'd taken a somewhat different route in life. He went to medical school, got very horrified by encountering extreme poverty in New York City. He was in medical school at Columbia while he was working as a medical student on a horse drawn ambulance serving the city's slums. He was shocked by what he saw, and he became part of the settlement house movement and went to live in a settlement house, as many volunteers did at that time, settlement house on the Lower East Side. And one day, Rose Pastor, as she then was, was sent to interview him. That's how they met, and they fell in love. So,
1: poor left-wing girl marries rich guy from an incredibly wealthy family. How did this marriage work?
4: Well, It was an extraordinary match, not just because it was someone extremely poor marrying someone extremely rich, but because it was a marriage of Jew and Gentile, which was very, very unusual at that time. And the unusualness of it made it literally front page news uh, across the country it was it was reported in europe and australia and other places as well front page of the new york times lead story in the new york evening world this extraordinary match and the public followed them with great fascination they lived in a blaze of publicity for the next 20 years because this seemed to be the cinderella story prince charming from his castle uh, Mary's poor virtuous Cinderella whisks her off to the castle from her humble hearth, and so on except their lives didn't follow the Cinderella script Ram Stokes to some degree had left the castle Rose had no desire to live in one they often stayed with his parents who had uh, extraordinarily fancy homes but it always made her uncomfortable and they married in 1905. In 1906, they both joined the Socialist Party, and for the next dozen years or so, they were friends with all the most interesting people in American life at that time. Emma Goldman, Lincoln Steffens, John Reed, Margaret Sanger, Big Bill Haywood, Eugene Debs, uh, all these folks were in and out of their homes, and some of, some of them left us their recollections of Rosengram.
1: So Graham Stokes became a socialist. How closely did he follow her politics? She was always in the lead and he was always one step behind?
4: Not exactly. He was in a way in the lead at the beginning because theirs started off as a fairly traditional marriage. Graham was seven years older than Rose. Rose they married on her 26th birthday she looked up to him was enormously impressed that here was this guy who knew a lot of the leading writers of the day had multiple graduate degrees seemed to know all kinds of things that uh, she didn't know and hadn't experienced in in life and i think it took her a decade or so to realize that she was smarter than he was There soon began to be an imbalance that appeared because she was a tremendously popular public speaker. Uh, one of my few regrets in, in researching the book was that it was just a decade or two too early for audio or video, so I couldn't actually hear the sound of her voice, but there are countless people writing to her saying, this is the best speech I ever heard. It moved me to tears. Newspaper reporters saying, you know, the audience was so riveted that they wouldn't leave the hall even when they turned the lights off, things like that. And there are signs that, Graham was not happy that his wife began receiving <laughs> more attention than, than he did. And then came World War One, Right. And this was the cause of really the first breach between them. Rose ended up feeling uh, that it was a terrible mistake for the United States to enter the war. And she went on the road saying this publicly, giving speeches in different parts of the country, Graham Stokes was so enthusiastic for the war that he enlisted, went into uniform, was too old to be sent overseas, although he tried very hard to make that happen. But he served in uniform in the New York National Guard for several years, never got closer to combat than marching down Fifth Avenue in a parade. And then they were further divided by the Russian Revolution, which happened, you know, the the second phase of the Revo- Russian Revolution, the Bolshevik seizure of power, which happened in the fall of 1917. Rose was all for it. Graham was against it. So this deepened the rift between them.
1: Now, you say Rose campaigned against America's entry into World War One. A lot of their friends in the Socialist Party who did this ended up deported or in jail. For example, Eugene Debs went to prison and Emma Goldman was deported. What happened to Rose?
4: She was arrested, sentenced to 10 years in prison under the Espionage Act uh, for speaking out against American participation in the war. Graham Stokes put up bail money. They appealed the case. And eventually, some three years later, it was overturned on appeal, so she didn't have to go to jail. Eugene Debs, however, was so moved by her being sentenced and being willing to go to prison for her beliefs that he began speaking out against the war much more energetically than he'd done before. And actually, in the speech for which he was arrested, he said, if Rose Pastor Stokes is guilty, then so am I. And he was sent to prison for several years, and he was still in prison in November of 1920 when he received nearly a million votes for president on the socialist ticket. Well, all
1: this happened 100 years ago. Do you see any parallels to today?
4: Well— I think a lot of the issues that angered Rose and Graham, that made them go into the socialist movement, are very much still with us. Look at inequality in this country. Today, the top 1% of the population has a greater share of the income and a greater share of the wealth than was the case in 1905 when Rose and Graham got married. You know, we still have extreme poverty in parts of this country. Uh, Every time I drive onto the freeway in Berkeley, I see an encampment of homeless people with their tents under the freeway underpass. So a lot of these problems are still with us. You say she was
1: prosecuted under the Espionage Act. Whatever happened to the Espionage Act?
4: An amended version of it is still with us. And uh, security agency whistleblower Edward Snowden and uh, a number of other whistleblowers have been prosecuted under it.
1: The amazing story of Rose Pastor Stokes, Adam Hochschild tells it in his irresistible new book, Rebel Cinderella. Adam, thanks so much for talking with us today.
4: Thank you, John.
1: Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. The theme music for our podcast is by Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. You can find out more about the Start Making Sense podcast at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts.
0: At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward.